Hello and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code was written by Dan Brown and published in 2003. And the film adaptation directed by Ron Howard came out in 2006. It's time for the secrets, Ian. Yes, you will learn the truth in this episode (laughs) about the Priory of Scion. The Holy Grail. The Holy Grail and so much more. But first, you will learn the truth about me. About baby Ian. (laughs) About Ian George in sixth grade. Yes, tell Uh, us this adorable story. Yeah, so I kind of have like a personal connection to this book because this was the first big boy book that I ever read in my life. Yeah. I was in sixth grade and I had a wonderful teacher, uh, Mrs. Schaefer, who was so... I remember her so distinctly, like it really felt like she treated us like equals in a way, which is crazy because we were so young. Yeah. But I remember that year Lost premiered mm-hmm. and she came into the classroom the next day. I was like, did anyone watch Lost last night? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, And I think she had told us about the book she had been reading, Da Vinci Code, and I asked her about it later and she told me she was like, well, you know, if your parents give you a signed letter saying you can read it, I'll let you borrow my copy of it. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. And my parents were like, sure. <laughs> and she let me borrow it. And the really cool thing about it is the copy that she gave me was a, um, like a visual copy. Oh, cool. So it had photo references for like all of the artwork, the architecture, the locations, mm-hmm. which is really cool. That's awesome. For this book specifically. But, uh, yeah, I tore through it. I really liked it. And then from then on, I, uh, was reading grown-up books. I moved on to Stephen King, and I uh, I never looked back. And here you are now. And here I am now, rereading it. Yeah. For the first time ever. And doing a podcast on it, and reading all kinds of books now, and maybe that seed that the teacher yeah. planted led to this. Thank you, Mrs. Schaefer, yes. uh, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I have never read this book. Um, all I knew about it was that a bunch of Catholics and Christians really hated it. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning right at the top how popular this book was when it came out. Um, Ian and I were pretty young when it did. So while you know, Ian did read the book, Um, I didn't, but I think we both were kind of aware of it being popular and a little bit of the controversy, but we weren't really old enough to understand. It's like I always saw it on like the Walmart bookshelf. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it had just a a cover that like stuck in my brain. And I was always like, what is that book? Like, why is it always up here? (laughs) Yeah. There were actually uh, boycotts, not only for the book, but for the movie. And in fact, certain countries refused to show the film when it came out. Yeah, I heard uh, India had a really delayed uh, release of it because of that very reason. Yeah, several countries. And yeah, people protesting, people um, protesting bookstores, some bookstores pulling it because of controversy. (laughs) Um, Honestly, this topic feels kind of relevant to now because we're seeing a lot of controversy over books, but more in schools And it's related to, you know, LGBTQ material and also topics of, you know, racial justice as well. So for totally different reasons, but, you know, on principle, censorship and book banning and things like that, it's just not good. And I think it's like, 
if you would just chill, like, it's not even that big of a deal. Yeah. Like, but of course, people can never chill, especially people who are religious and especially people who are homophobic or mm-hmm. racist, you know, it's but, like. But it's the left that's the cancel culture, Adina. Oh <laughs> We're getting off track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also worth mentioning that uh, this is the second book in a somewhat extensive series now. Robert Langdon, the protagonist of this story, um, there was a book before this called Angels and Demons, mm-hmm. uh, which featured was the premiere of that character. Then Da Vinci Code was the second story with him in it. Then The Lost Symbol, yeah. which from what I have, I didn't read it. I think I started it as when I was younger. Uh, I think it's like National Treasure because <laughs> it's like <laughs> about the Freemasons in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So they didn't make a movie about that one, but then they did make a movie about Inferno, which yeah. was the following book. And I don't know if there's another one after that. They did kind of make Angels and Demons like a sequel in the film. Yeah, which even I mean. Even though it's the first one in the yeah. book series. Yeah. Which like the connective tissue between like there are allusions to that book at the beginning of Da Vinci Code. Yeah. But it makes sense. It doesn't tell you much about it because it's like. That's a different it, book. It wants you to read it too. Yeah. It doesn't want to spoil everything. So <laughs> yeah. there's only vague mentions of it. But uh, yeah, because this book was so popular, it got the first movie treatment. Yes. Of any of them. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Robert Langdon, our main character, who is a professor at Harvard of religious symbology. Yes. Religious symbols. Religious emojis. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All of them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he's just real into uh, iconography and historical symbols, and they're changing through history. And the film kind of uh, shows a little bit of his speech, you know, saying like, Oh, in America, this white hood is like, you know, related to the Ku Klux Klan. But Mm -hmm. in Spain, it's like a religious garb. And yeah. So he's like, you know, in his 40s, he's handsome. He's kind of like the generic protagonist here. Um, And he is, of course, drawn into a plot. And we get this in the beginning of the book as like a prologue. And in the movie, it's kind of happening at the same time that he's giving his lecture, which is a murder in the Louvre. Yes, of all places. Uh, We get a frightened older man, a uh, curator at the museum, fleeing Mm -hmm. through the corridors where he ends up lifting a painting off of the wall so that a gate will drop. Meant to lock in a thief, but really it's blocking him from his attacker. Yeah. Uh, we get the first glimpse of Silas, a like seven foot tall albino monk. <laughs> you know, if you're going to hire a hitman, yeah, it's make best him to go instantly recognizable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but Silas, you know, despite being closed off from the man, still has a gun on him. Some information is communicated between them in the movie. It is yeah. uh, muffled and obscured. And then Silas shoots this man. Mm-hmm. And then the man uh, is like, oh, no, I only have 15 minutes to stage an elaborate treasure hunt. <laughs> Can I just say, though, that like so the police like bring Langdon in because of the symbols in this crime scene of this murder at the Louvre. And in the movie, he's in the middle of signing books for people and the cop is like here's a photo of a dead man like not caring (laughs) who else just hanging around will Mm -hmm. see this picture i'm like dude can they be like hey i'm the cops can i talk to you about something 
take you to a different corner, then show you the photo. Show you the dead body then. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, this guy was like mumbling in a French accent and it was really hard to understand him. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, his tactics were um, a little odd. Yeah. So in the book, uh, Langdon is awoken that night at his hotel room, but the setup is the same. The police bring him to the Louvre uh, where he meets Fash. I, I'm not totally sure on that pronunciation. We're uh, just going to butcher all of the French names. <laughs> I am so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm deeply apologetic. Like. I know. We have <laughs> French teachers and people from France who listen to this podcast. It's going to be bad. Yeah. Um, Fash is the uh, head of the Paris police force. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the crime scene, though. And, you know. Robert's impression on here. So we have the art curator who has been murdered. He's totally naked. He has drawn in blood a pentangle. Pentacle, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm saying that weird, right? <laughs> pentangle. Pentangle. Pentacle on his chest. And then we later find out that there's black light markings. There's a circle around him and then also some uh, code Numbers written down and then some lines that sound vaguely like poetry. Very cryptic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, lame saints. Oh, draconian devil. Yeah. And then uh, another line that Robert is unaware of at this point because it's been erased. Yeah. So Robert is trying to help uh, Fash like figure out, you know, he's kind of really just clarifying things for him. Like, yeah. Fash is like, this looks very satanic. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, the pentacle has its origins in pagan uh, symbology, usually referring to Venus. Yeah, and... do you remember where we talked about the uh, pentacle or pentangle before? I remember where... Oh, no, I not where we've talked about it. We talked about it in regards to um, Sir Gawain in The Green Knight. Because oh. he had the, the five-pointed star on his shield. That's right. stood for the five virtues. Well, and interestingly enough, uh, Sir Gawain in the Green Knight is referred to in this book as a allegory for the Holy Grail search. Yeah. I Which have, is, I've never I heard don't that. know how or why, but... <laughs> well, and in uh, Gawain, they talk about, like, the pentangle being related to the Virgin Mary... Mm, yeah. And to to Christ. Um, and then, of course, in this version, it is a different Mary that yes. they are discussing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and, and Robert is saying like this man, the man who was killed. Uh, how do you pronounce his name? Sonier. Sonier uh, or something along those lines. He was uh, really renowned for his his research and knowledge in this area. Goddess research. Goddess research, the divine feminine. And he's like, he would have known this isn't satanic. Yeah. So something's going on here. Mm-hmm. And around this time, a young uh, cryptologist. Yes. Cryptologist for the, the police department shows up. Sophie Nouveau. Yeah. And she kind of storms into the crime scene and Fash is thrown off by this and angered. She, well, she's there because there are numbers written on the floor. And she was like, I was I'm here to decipher them. They don't really mean anything. And then it's the Fibonacci sequence. Fibonacci. Fibonacci yes. sequence. And she gives Robert discreetly a message uh, through the phone. Mm hmm. Telling him to meet her in the bathroom and not in a sexy you are way. In grave danger. <laughs> you are in grave danger. <laughs> so Robert meets. Robert manages to get away. He meets Sophie in the bathroom, where he discovers that he is the prime suspect of this murder. Yeah, it turns out uh, Sonnier, the art curator who was murdered, 
wrote an extra little line in Blacklight that just said, P.S., find Robert Langdon. And Mm -hmm. Fash, the cop, is like, oh, I wonder why a dying man would be like, find this man. (laughs) But as a postscript? Yeah. Like, (laughs) first of all, let me just jot down some numbers, some random satanic sounding things, and then also... (laughs) Here's my killer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't say, like, he killed me, which he yeah. had time to do. Clearly. He had a lot of time to write that <laughs> instead of getting naked. <laughs> but it's still suspicious, so you kind of yeah. get why Fash might uh, suspect Robert Langdon. But, yeah, Sophie is like, listen, this he was my grandfather. He was trying to tell me something. We haven't spoken for, like, 10 years, and he called me today and said he had to tell me something about my family, that I was in danger, and I didn't get to him in time, and now he's dead, and now you are suspected of the crime. And that postscript, I actually know, was for me, because he used to call me Princess Sophie, and he would shorten it to P.S. all the time. And so he wanted me to find you. There's something going on that the two of us need to figure out together. Do you feel this, this chemistry right now? <laughs> like, this, it's meant to be. What's happening? <laughs> but first... Before anything else, we have to figure out how to save you from being arrested for a murder you didn't commit. So I do think that this is smart because originally the plan is just to get him to his embassy. Yeah. Instead of just being like, we have to run. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's sort of like a leap for for both Robert Langdon and Sophie to just like take off, you know? Without like a plan. Like we're just yeah. going to go on the run from On like the a law. treasure hunt. Yeah. So initially they're like, let's get you to the embassy mm-hmm. uh, where you'll at least be like somewhat safe from fash. Yeah. So they create a divergent, a, a divergent, a, di- <laughs> a distraction. <laughs> A diversion. A diversion. <laughs> a divergent. Divergent. Starring Shailene oh, Woodley. Oh, Jesus Christ. As soon as I said that, I couldn't think of the actual word. Fuck. Uh, a diversion. That was great. Oh, gee, I love uh, that. <laughs> I'm glad we've got that on the recording. Um, Robert had a uh, tracking device slipped into his coat. So they use that to their advantage by throwing it out the window onto a moving truck. So it seems as though Robert leapt out the window to escape from the police. Embedded in a bar of soap. Embedded. So brilliant. Uh, So the, like every police officer leaves the museum to chase after the, the homing beacon. Yeah. This touches on something that about the movie that needs to be said now. So all the police leave for this tracking device, right? Yeah. Then in the next shot, we see Sophie kind of peering around a corner And then very undramatically, we just see Robert there, too. Yeah. We don't know yet, like, exactly what happened. Yeah. About what the tracking dot or anything. But the reveal that he didn't jump out the window is so unceremonious and, like... Yeah. Almost like they didn't even realize, like, oh, this is the first time we're seeing him. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, oh, he's here, too. And he didn't jump. And there's something just about this movie that, at the beginning... It was the it felt the most obvious. It's just boring. Yeah. There's just no energy to it. No. And that's like the best way I can describe it. And sometimes I have this problem, and I think you do too, when you're watching a movie or maybe even reading a book 
And like something is wrong. Yeah. And you don't know what it is. Yes. And it, it it's actually just everything. Yeah. It's like, what's the missing <laughs> ingredient, right? Yeah. And I think part of it is just like intent. Y- you know, like, first of all, I noticed in a lot of scenes there was no score at all. Yeah. When a score really could have like elevated the suspense of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so there, uh, a huge lack of score throughout. Um, you're in the Louvre, right? They actually filmed a lot of this in the real Louvre. Yeah. And it kind of doesn't feel like they fully utilize, like, that space in yeah. the filming. Like, it's a lot of it's so much of this movie is really dark and in shadows. And, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if Ron Howard thought that would be atmospheric and moody, but it's just kind of boring. Yeah. Uh. We talked last night because we just watched Grand Budapest Hotel last night. And Mm -hmm. there's so many scenes in that movie of a character just walking through a hallway and then turning down another hallway and then walking into a room and stuff like that. And it's so engaging. Yeah. Just because it's made and knowing what it's doing between the music and costumes and like having an energy. Yeah. And this is like the exact opposite. Yeah, and you know, like, no shade to Tom Hanks either, because Tom Hanks is an amazing actor. Yes. But there's just nothing going on with Robert. No. Like, there is nothing. Like, he, his head is so empty. Like, it really <laughs> is. And, like, there's a scene later where he's looking at the ground and he's, like, anagramming. Yeah, you know? yeah. He's, like... Like literally, num like letters, not numbers. Letters are being like highlighted as he's anagramming in his mind, and then later he's anagramming out loud, like he's rap battling or something. <laughs> and it's just not interesting. Also, I, I want to make a compilation video of just all of his super lame reactions. There's so many times where he's like, "Whoa," or. <laughs> Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> like him realizing something, but, like, he seems so bored. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's so surprising because Tom Hanks typically elevates whatever material he's working or, like, whatever role he's in. I agree. Like, he's just so naturally charismatic mm-hmm. and engaging. And, like, I don't know if there just wasn't anything to this role that he could latch on to. Maybe Ron Howard wasn't giving him anything to work with. But, like, he easily just could have been charming. Well, and I just don't think that there's any chemistry between him and Sophie either. There's not. Who is played by um, Audria Tatao. Mm -hmm. I'm probably terribly mispronouncing her last name. But she was in Amelie, the main character in Amelie. Um, and it was cool to see her in something else. And she's like decent in this. But like between them, there's nothing. No. And in the book, there's like a little bit of sexual tension between them. I think they could have really played that up in the film. Yeah. You know? Well, there's definitely an age gap between yeah. them. I read that like she didn't get the part for a while because they thought the age gap was too great before they ended up giving it to her. But like it still doesn't feel she still feels like way too young for there to be like a yeah. real connection between them. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, and I kind of feel that way, not about everyone, like, I mean, this movie has a great cast. Oh, I know. I think, uh, uh, Paul Bettany as Silas brings it the most. Definitely. I think he does the most with his role. Mm -hmm. But besides that, it's like, it's such a stacked cast, but just nothing's going on with it. Yeah. And, and Ron Howard is a director 
I mean, he makes excellent films. He does. He's very hit or miss, though. That's true. And he doesn't really have a style he's known for. Mm -hmm. Like, he's done comedies. He's done, he did, like, the uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah. But then he's done thrillers like this, and he's done historical pieces, or, uh, like, Apollo 13, and he he's very all over the place. Yeah. And I wonder if that hurt him here, that he didn't have the vocabulary to do a thriller Mm -hmm. effectively, but, um... Yeah. I mean, the timing of it, too, it's really hard not to compare it to National Treasure. When did that <laughs> yes. come out? Uh, pro- uh, probably really close to the same time. I was going to say. And, like, that movie is so entertaining. Oh, it's so, it's like just having fun. Yeah, it's just like a, a fun treasure hunt. Whereas this, it feels like each clue and each step is, like, just confusing. Yeah, and it takes itself very seriously. That's There's true. very little humor in it. Mm-hmm. And I really think some humor and letting Tom Hanks be a little more loose yeah. could have just helped this movie a lot. Should we talk about this scene, though, continuing in the Louvre where they find more? I mean, this is what happens, right? They they find more paintings. There's <laughs> writing near more the paintings. Writing. There's anagrams. They're like, okay... This leads us to that painting of Da Vinci and then this painting of Da Vinci and then we find a key and then they really leave the Louvre and For make good. their escape. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they get in Sophie's car. There is a car chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of an exciting one in the film. One of oh, the yeah. few kind of more heart racing But again, scenes. I would say the soundtrack is really weird for this scene. In this scene in particular, yeah. It's like dramatic it's, music. Um, it's like choir yeah, music. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a symphony happening while they're she's driving her car backwards, which is cool. Like overly dramatic versus uh intense like, or thrilling. Yeah, a beat. And there's a scene later when the plane is landing that they're on where I felt like the music finally was like yeah, this is good tense music building up to a moment that's coming up. And like, yeah. like that one moment made me realize how much the music had failed throughout this movie. Because I'm like, this one moment works. Yeah. Let's talk about Silas, though, played by uh, Paul Bettany in the movie. Yes. The albino monk. The albino monk. Murderer. <laughs> Killer. <laughs> uh s- Paul Bettany does so good with this. He does. That scene where he's whipping himself, it, I mean, alone. I read that he was actually really like whipping himself. What? Are you kidding me? I mean, probably not to like a real severe degree, but enough that like he was actually hurting himself. Oh my God. Because they had to like set up multiple cameras because he's like, I'm doing this once. So they set up like multiple cameras to like actually capture it. But, yeah. Uh, Gross. Yeah. <laughs> like he just um like there's so uh Silas does this uh self-mutilation thing he has the Celise Celise which is a barbed uh leather band he re- he wears around his leg like a really bad uh garter <laughs> like the world's worst garter <laughs> the world's belt. most painful garter belt <laughs> <laughs> um so he was the man who he has done a few murders of the night yeah and he found out from all of his victims who were connected that what he's looking for, the keystone, mm-hmm. is in a, is hidden away in a church. Yes. So he goes to this church uh, through his his uh, higher up connections. He gets in and in the middle of the night, let in by a nun, mm-hmm. uh, so he can like look for the keystone. Yeah. He discovers a stone that uh, 
basically through a Bible verse is telling him to go fuck himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dead end. Yeah. He ends up murdering the nun. It's very dramatic. And like, we're piecing together at this point that there is some secret that he's seeking and the people that he's killed, he's, you know, trying to find out this information. And he's part of this organization called um, Opus Dei. Yes. Which is an actual uh, Catholic sect mm-hmm. that's real. And, like, he has this kind of dramatic backstory where he was albino, so his like family hated him and he ended up killing his father yeah going to prison and then escaping prison in a very um paul and silas fashion yeah very biblical yeah and ends up becoming part of the fold of opus opus day under bishop erin garosa and devoting his life to god and this kind of giving him purpose and he's i mean he's like your classic like religious extremist, right? Yeah. He's willing to kill because he believes it's what God wants him to do. Yes. And I, you know, despite him being, you know, a murderer, uh, you do feel like quite a bit of sympathy for him yeah. in the story. And I think Paul Bettany does good with that aspect to him too. Like you actually yeah. do feel like bad for him because he's someone who clearly like has been kind of aimless in his life and then found this like, connection and like a father figure to kind of like give him purpose Mm -hmm. and he's using that purpose to kill people or someone's using him and you feel like he's just being misguided like he's too trusting almost yeah so bishop erin grossa yes so silas and bishop erin grossa we'll just probably call him the bishop from now on are working together but also separately at this time, and they're working with someone known to them only as the teacher. Yeah. Here's the thing, is that apparently Aaron Garosa, when you break it apart, it's French roots, like, literally translate to red herring. Ah. But he wasn't, though. No. Because the whole story, you're aware that there is someone else who's pulling the strings, that there is a teacher that is doing all this. So, like... You knew he wasn't. Maybe it's just meant to represent Opus Dei as a red herring, since he yeah. kind of represents Opus Dei. Yeah, maybe. I. Yeah, maybe it was, I don't know. It was just like, he's in the story quite a bit. Yeah. And I just don't know how justified his existence is beyond representing this sect of Catholicism and his connection to Silas. And ex- yeah, but we get most of that from Silas. Yeah. I just don't think the bishop's role is, like, justified enough in the story. No. Uh, essentially, he does seem very sinister. Mm-hmm. He is on a plane for quite a bit of the story. He arrives in Vatican City, I believe, yeah. where he meets with a congregation or group of cardinals mm-hmm. who are paying him a large sum of money. We assume for suspicious purposes. Yes. And he's in communication with the teacher, and they're talking about finding the keystone and Silas being part of that mission to find the keystone. And he is also, the bishop is also in communication with Fash, the head of police. So then we feel like the police are in on this conspiracy. It does feel like everybody around Sophie and Robert could be out to get them. More than anything, I think Fash is the red herring. Definitely. Like if anyone was the teacher, it was him. I know. That's what I would have thought. Yeah. So I just think the whole like his name meaning that is kind of like, what? 
Um, let's go back to Robert and Sophie. Yes. They need some time to figure out what's going on. They end up in Prostitute Park. (laughs) (laughs) A very uh, well-known location in Paris. Apparently. Prostitute Park. Uh, yeah, in the, uh, book, they actually get a taxi. Mm Mm-hmm. But when the taxi dispatcher mentions the names of these wanted fugitives, they end up taking the taxi at gunpoint and escaping. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the film, they just need a place to think and talk. Yeah. And uh, around this time, Robert brings up the Priory of Sion. Which is a very old and ancient secret society that has been rumored to be the protectors of the Holy Grail. And so he kind of gives Sophie a little bit of the backstory because he knows the history of a lot of secret sects throughout history because of his um, symbolism degree and research and talks about how the Priory of Asion, um is supposed to have a grandmaster and three others, and the four of them are kind of like the keepers of the secret. And that this is when we start to think that, you know, Saunier, Sophie's grandfather, was part of this secret society and that he is trying to now impart secret knowledge, possibly about the Holy Grail itself, to Sophie so that the secret does not die. Yeah, this information is kind of parsed out throughout this part, but that's like the gist of it. Uh, So they have this key that they got at the Louvre and they have an address. I kind of forget where they. Oh, the address was on the key, I think. Yeah. So they go to the address and discover it's this like wild Swiss bank Mm -hmm. and they get in with their fancy key. Uh, They meet the owner of the bank Mm -hmm. and are able to access this storage box, which contains a a, a wooden box, which contains... (laughs) The cryptex. The cryptex. Yes. Which is kind of the iconic object of this movie mm-hmm. and book. It has a cool design, you know? Like, apparently it was designed by Da Vinci himself. Yeah. And it's this tube where there's a bunch of, there's like five dials with different letters. Yeah. And so it's a five-letter wor- word, and you have to find the word. And if you, like, try to open it without having the code, the proper coded word, um, the message inside will be destroyed by vinegar. That's yeah, in a vial will break that will dissolve the message. Yeah, so it's really cool. Like the idea of it makes a lot of sense, and yeah. I like that. Yeah, I couldn't help but laugh when we were reading this book because <laughs> I'm I just couldn't help but think of Wordle. Yeah, which everyone is so into right now, myself included, and just like. Wow, here we are reading a book where, like, the crux of the mystery revolves around figuring out the right five-letter word (laughs) (laughs) to win the game. Yeah. And it just just cracked me up a little bit. (laughs) It is funny. (laughs) The Wordle of 2003, the Cryptex. Yes, the Cryptex. The owner of the bank... Seems to be on their side. He manages to smuggle them out in a... Because the police are coming. Yeah, when the police surround the bank, he smuggles them out in an armored car. Uh, But, unfortunately, he then turns on them because he thinks that they came by the key and the account number Mm -hmm. uh, through murdering Sophie's granddad. Yeah, so I think this part doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't like really. in both the book and the movie yeah because the bank manager is willing to literally smuggle these two fugitives out of his bank in front of the police pretend to be someone else to the police to get them out and then just suddenly decides 
to try to take the box, but well, he's not doing it because he wants the box. He's doing it because of the account. I think it makes sense in as far as he wanted them out of the bank. Yeah. Because he didn't want fugitives to be caught in his bank. Yeah. But then he also didn't want them to take this thing that he didn't think they were like given permission to take. Yeah, but it's just confusing. Though. No, it is. Like you never really get like a good explanation for this moment. It but just feels like another like situation they have to escape from. Yeah, and I guess not the most interesting. I will say though, the book is so fast-paced in like a good way. Yeah. The thing I really like about it, it throughout most of it is that it feels like they are just barely escaping the police like yeah. at every turn or yeah. other threats like whether it's silas or like the bank manager turning on them like, yeah it, it feels like they're just always like right on the edge of getting caught mm -hmm. and it's very exciting like uh dan brown is not afraid to continuously be throwing new uh hurdles at them yeah and i i think that would that's what partly makes it so gripping and engaging and like fast paced to read through especially because he does the cliffhanger chapter set up pretty frequently where and pretty short chapters too pretty short chapters and then he'll switch to a different perspective yeah. before coming back to them to resolve the cliffhanger that he was on mm -hmm. uh, it's structured as a thriller very well i think yeah it does have really great structure but i just will say i felt like this was just one too many yeah dangerous scenes i do like how they escape though with yeah. robert subtly blocking the door with that uh, gun shell, yeah. the bullet shell. Mm -hmm. And the thing I like about Robert in this story, and I don't know if this is true for the other stories that he's in, he is active in the story, but he never does anything that feels out of character. Yeah. Like, he, he never... He never judo chops anyone. He never. No. <laughs> I don't even think he holds... He probably holds a gun at one yeah, point. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I guess he does hold a gun at one point. But, like, he never does anything that's, like, that... No, he doesn't turn into an action hero. No, yeah. no, he's never Indiana Jones. And I appreciate that, that like Dan Brown restrains that aspect of him. Yeah. I just got to mention the movie has so many flashback scenes in it, Ian. It does. <laughs> so many. I have notes around this time in the movie because while they're in the armored truck, like both Robert and Sophie have a oh, flashback yeah. scene because Sophie's remembering her grandfather and the fact that they were estranged because she witnessed something scandalous. Oh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, and then, like, Robert has a flashback of being trapped in a well, which is his traumatic backstory. The funny thing is, I, I am guessing that Robert's claustrophobia probably played... Was a plot point in Angels and Demons. In Angels and Demons more than this book. Yeah. So it was continuing that continuity of his character in this book... Um, which makes sense, but in the movie's frame of reference, like... It's just like, why are we talking about this? Yeah, his claustrophobia never really plays that big of a part. No, and there's never a scene where he has to, like, overcome his fear or he has to get out of a tight situation no. or anything at all, yeah. ever. The worst thing that happens to him is he has to get in an elevator. That's it, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Basically. <laughs> so that's just kind of an interesting thing that yeah. I think the movie had to I, probably... Well, they didn't have to include it. Well, but then they did Angels and Demons after this. Yeah. Which, if that does include a claustrophobic scene, 
they probably wanted that continuity in this book or movie, yeah. so I, I'm not sure. Yeah. It just, I felt like they had a lot of references to him being claustrophobic. Yeah. Well, and in regards to the flashback thing, it's also funny because, like, they do a lot of historical flashbacks as Robert is explaining things. Yeah. Which there is a lot of explaining in this movie, so I get the desire to want some kind of visual aid to go with that. Mm-hmm. But it also felt like the movie was just, like, upping its budget for, like, no reason. It was almost like, this has to be a big-budget movie. Like, this yeah. is a big movie. We gotta spend, like, a lot of money on this. Like, let's do, like, <laughs> these ghosty, fady transitions to, like, other time periods where we're showing, like, the Knights Templar and, yeah. like, uh, people from the Bible and, like, all these other, you know, things where really it doesn't feel that purposeful no. most of the time. I agree. It just feels like they're using up a budget. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a lot of like grainy flashbacks. The grain on these. I don't get the why the grain. And like the color correcting as yeah. well. It has like a tone to it. I think it feels very early 2000s <laughs> yeah. in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. Yeah. But it's just too many, especially be- between like the Silas flashbacks, Sophie's constant flashbacks, Robert's well flashbacks, and it's not just one like the characters flashback multiple times, and I yeah. was like, too many, too many flashbacks. <laughs> That's one too many. <laughs> well, and we didn't mention this up front. We happened to watch the extended cut of this movie purely on accident. Which apparently it's only 10 minutes longer than the original cut, so it's not like we really extended our experience, no. but still. But some of this stuff may have been cut out from the theatrical version. True, maybe less flashbacks. I would imagine some of these flashbacks <laughs> were cut out. I would hope some of these flashbacks. Tell us about your flashback experiences <laughs> in the Da Vinci Code movie. Yeah, if you could count them up and send us a number uh, for reference. Uh, so around this time, they need a place. They are in a stolen armored car. They don't. They need some place to hide. Yeah. And they also have all these questions surrounding uh, the Priory of Scion, the Grail. The Cryptex. So we only have one place to go, baby. It's Ian McKellen's house. It's Sir Ian McKellen playing Sir Lee Teabing. Let me just say I don't like the name Teabing. <laughs> does it sound like teabagging? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. It sounds like he was like teabag, teabing. So British, he's British tea, teabag. T-bing. There's actually <laughs> there is actually a weird reason for his name. It's okay. actually an anagram or ambigram. Wait, what's the what's the word? Anagram. Anagram of a different person's name. Oh, really? Who has relevance to some to the Holy Grail? To the Holy Grail. <laughs> so okay, it, yeah. So there, there's. It's probably why it ended up being kind of a weird name. It's still not great to say out loud. Teething. Yeah. <laughs> It also sounds or like teething. It sounds like teething. Yeah. Like a baby teething. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've established that. <laughs> but I love Ian McKellen as teething. Great casting. He's awesome. Excellent. I just also appreciate that they got a someone who was knighted yes. to play a character who was knighted. Mm-hmm. He brings that like distinguished quality to the character and the also ex- the eccentricity. Yes, but also kind of the joyfulness and excited quality. Because teething is uh he is a holy grail quester he is a historian he's mm-hmm. been looking into this for years yeah he's written books on it and so he has a lot of information that uh robert thinks would be helpful to them yes 
And so they go, they go to his mansion, he makes them tea, and then he gives them a lecture on the Holy Grail. And here we are, Ian, we have arrived. Sophie is a Grail virgin, according to Teething. (laughs) So we have to talk about the Grail story. Yes. So in the book, it's interesting, Teabing and uh, Robert are both kind of on the same page. They're giving their uh, different sides from two different academic fields Yeah. on the story of the Holy Grail. Uh, the movie, though, is different because Robert is, he's aware of these stories. But he's a skeptic. He's a skeptic, yeah. Whereas Teabing is like fully drinking the the juice you know he's in it yeah he's in on the conspiracy yeah and so in the film there's actually a lot of back and forth and kind of arguing between the two of them yeah it creates more tension in this scene which i think is interesting because it is a lot of info dumping it is so to have something going on between the characters makes it a little more engaging totally uh god where to even begin so they talk about the holy grail right yeah except it's not a cup is it no it is, in fact, uh, a woman, a woman, a, a chick. <laughs> <laughs> it is Mary Magdalene, who is the wife of Jesus and who had Jesus's baby. And it's interesting because they talk about the priority of the Scion yeah. society as uh, being um, like the Knights Templar Part of the Crusades. Yeah, they're kind of an extension of the Templar Knights. Mm -hmm. And it is their job to uh, protect the bloodline Mm -hmm. of Jesus and Mary Magdalene uh, from the church. Because the the revelation that Jesus had a child would show that he wasn't like God or divine. Yeah. And that this could like shake people's faith. And, mm-hmm. like, have people fleeing the church, basically. Yeah. So the church is like, uh-uh, we gotta... We gotta kill these We gotta people. kill all these people and, yeah. like, burn any evidence that shows Jesus had a child. Mm-hmm. And the Priory of Science goal is to, like, protect this bloodline and evidence of it and, like... One day reveal the secret. Yeah. We discover that many famous, intelligent... Smarty pants men throughout history <laughs> have been members of the Priory and Grand Masters. Including Da Vinci. Yes, Da Vinci, uh, Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Um, Walt what? Disney. <laughs> <laughs> the, they, they mentioned that. Oh, my that, God. And they mentioned that they, in the book. He talks about Di- Walt Disney way too much. I know. I'm like, what What are you getting out He's of like, this? have you even seen The Little Mermaid? Okay, <laughs> that is an allegory for the Holy Grail. And I'm like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Please calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Everything actually is a metaphor for the Holy Grail, if you didn't know, if you read this book. Um, Yeah, the the references, they talk about Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper, how it's really Mary Magdalene that's sitting next to Jesus, that there's other paintings that he did that, you know, reference um, the Grail as Mary Magdalene, and that, like, basically everything that's ever been written or... (laughs) Movies that have been made or poems, anything, literally everything is referencing the Holy Grail of Mary Magdalene. There's a very revealing moment in the book where Robert tells Sophie, like, once you know of its existence, you see it everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a conspiracy That's called being crazy. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's called being paranoid. That's called 
Like literally being like, I'm so entrenched in one worldview that everything I see just confirms it instead of keeping my mind open and trying to see what's actually happening in the world. Exactly. What is that called? Like confirmation bias? Oh, yeah, when yeah, you yeah. you see what you want to see. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, Dina. <clears throat> I went on my own grail quest today. <laughs> Through Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia Grail Quest. Yes. To try to untangle. The pentangle. The, penta- the pentangle <laughs> of this conspiracy. Because reading this book, I think you and I were both like, what in this book is real? What's not real? Yeah. Uh, I watched a presentation and talk about this, which was interesting. Like one of the things they were like very early on, they were like, oh, Da Vinci was gay. Yeah. Like a very known flamboyant homosexual. And I'm like. He was. And it's mentioned a few times. Yeah. And I'm like, I mean, it must be true. He seems very confident about it. Yeah. And then I'm like, I I watched this speech by a Harvard professor and he's like, no. (laughs) He was like, he was accused at one point of being a homosexual. Along with like a lot of other people Mm -hmm. that was. And like, there are writings that people were like, you can read into it that he was. Yeah. But they're like, there's by no means like hard evidence of yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, it's hard with a lot of historical figures. I could go on about this, about whether they were gay or not, because our idea of being gay has like totally changed throughout history. Yeah. So. Well, that's the other thing was like the historical context and how I'm like, how can you be sure about that? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we were both like, what in this story is real and what isn't? So I started researching it. And I started with the Priory of Scion. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so the, my assumption reading this book was like, Dan Brown probably did a lot of research into a lot of niche things. Yeah. Kind of. Drew it all together. Yeah. Kind of created his own thing out of it all. You know, in this book, this kind of mythology. Uh-uh. No. So much of this can be distilled down into like a, a handful of people, Adina. <laughs> So let's start with the Priory of Sion, right? Okay, yeah. Um, the ancient society. The ancient, not so, ancient <laughs> is in 1956, Adina. <laughs> uh, the Priory of Sion uh, was a neo-chivalric order said to be established in 1099, which the book claims at the beginning, the Da Vinci Code claims. Yeah. The Priory of Sion is a real organization established then. Mm-hmm. It says fact. Um, but it was officially established in 1956 by uh, Pierre Plantard. And their claims or their, like, goals at the beginning were, like, very vague. Yeah. Besides being, like, chivalric and, or chivalrous and... Wanting to be knights. Yeah, basically. (laughs) uh, They kind of weighed in on local politics and uh, talked a lot about, like, affordable housing, which is weird. (laughs) Uh, And it's unclear when certain claims started to be made. But Plantard was like, no, you see, uh, the Priory of Sion is actually only the most current face of a centuries-old mm. organization going as far back as to the Knights Templar. And uh, the goal of this long-going organization is to um, establish the Merovingian bloodline, which is a bloodline uh, of rulers of France going back to, like, 400, 500 years after Jesus' death. The goal was to keep that bloodline known and to eventually put people from that bloodline back into seats of power in France and across Europe. Wow. Yeah. Uh, And then he found a document called the Dossier of Secrets, Mm -hmm. uh, which was two scrolls or a compilation of documents that he uh, put into the French National Library. Wow. I don't know if he like... (laughs) 
I don't know if he went through any like um, process to do this or if he literally just like stuck it on a shelf, hit a book in the library. <laughs> um, but this book was supposed to be or these documents were supposed to show the family trees of people and the descendants going back to this Merovingian uh, family. Yeah. Uh, which he just happened uh, to be a part of. Of course. Is of he course, the direct descendant? Uh, uh, King Dagbert II, <laughs> apparently, uh, was his role. Yeah. These documents, unsurprisingly, were proven to be false. Oh, God. They were fabricated. Uh, they were said to be centuries old. They were, in fact, only decades old when looked at. Wow. And it was basically very obviously just an attempt on uh Planter's part to put himself in like the middle of this <laughs> trying to create an organization and get like smart people in and like make himself seem powerful. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah. Pretty bad. So that is so so far that's just the Priory of Cyan relating to the Merovingian bloodline. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this dude who just started it all. Yeah. Enter Michael Bennett, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln. So Henry Lincoln did a short BBC docuseries, Mm -hmm. but then expanded this into a whole book called Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Okay. Which was written by the three of them. Yeah. And it is about Jesus uh, having a child with Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene then going to southern France, where she uh, married into, or her descendants married into the Merovingian bloodline, yeah. which then continued, and they happened to use a certain document they found in the French uh, National Library, the Dossier of Secrets. Oh my God. As proof of this. So they took this document, fake document, fake document and used its lineage, which they then connected to Jesus, because the, um, the Dossier of Secrets supposedly connected the Merovingian bloodline to the tribe of Benjamin. Uh-huh. So they're using this as like, and they're like, and the Priory of Sion's goal was to hide uh, the descendants of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Plantard, whose whole goal was to just be like, I come from royal blood. Yeah. Now these people are like, you come from Jesus's <laughs> blood. And he was like, okay. <laughs> He never really, like, refuted it or anything, as far as I can tell. Wow. Um, And this book, uh, Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, uh, became a bestseller when it came out in 1982. Wow. Got a lot of people interested in this conspiracy, but historians were very quick to be like, this is pseudo-history. Yeah. They don't really make any claims that can be Mm fact-checked or actually connected to anything. It's just a lot of conjecture. Yeah. Uh, But this is... The basis of this entire backstory of the book. Yeah. And you know what? Dan Brown says at the beginning of the book that everything in it is true. Mm -hmm. That the characters that he made up were fake, but that the societies, the rituals, the secrets, all of that is true. And I also read that when he was doing his press tour for the book and the movie, he kept claiming yeah. That everything was true. I saw him in an interview because I wanted to know. I'm like, how much is he feeding into this? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I know in the book he doesn't admit to any of this, but like in public. But he was like, no, like when I did my research, I realized like, you know, all of this makes a lot of sense. And it's hard to like. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> y- you know, deny how much truth there is to all of this. Yeah. So now he could just be feeding into. Yeah. 
His own sales. His own sales, the craze of the book, the people that were like really into it. But like the fact that he based this so much on a real conspiracy and does nothing to actually like give any context to it Mm -hmm. and is only fueling people's uh, conspiracy theories, I have a lot of problems with. Yeah, and this is where like the controversy comes in, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, these religious institutions, Christians, Catholics, you know, different sects, like a lot of people were offended by this, not just because of the allegations that Jesus had a love child, which honestly, who cares? Yeah. But like (laughs) just the fact that it's so obviously fake like everything about it is so wrong and like people objecting to that in itself Mm -hmm. being you know like well there 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 needs to be some accountability right like he can't go around saying all this is true when it's obviously not but at the same time it's just fiction but he's trying to like capitalize off it but at the same time like it's never okay to ban a book i don't know it's just like all confusing yeah because like on one hand you know if from the standpoint of, like, historical fiction or fiction like this that's, like, conspiracy-related, I don't necessarily think the author has to make any proclamations in the book as to, like, what's fake and what isn't and, like, what they made up and where things came from. Like, I don't necessarily think that. But if he's going to go on tour and be like, yeah, no, man, like, seriously, this is true. Like, I did my research and, like, that's kind of a whole different thing. I mean, if you think about the book for two seconds, it's obvious that none of this is true. Well, Because all his examples of proof are just... You know Ariel, the Little Mermaid? <laughs> that's Mary Magdalene. You know um, The Last Supper? That's It just being like random things. They're connected and you're like, well, you're just saying that. You're not actually giving us like proof that we can like look at and be like, this is that. Well, the other thing I cannot figure out, and I don't think the book explains this at all, is like eventually you find out uh, Sophie is one of these is yeah. the descendant? Yeah. They make it sound like she's the only one, right? There would be tons. How could she be the only <laughs> descendant of a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Yeah, we're probably all descendants of him. <laughs> Unless you, like, specifically made sure that, like, the family only had one kid and then another yeah. kid and then only one more kid for, like, 2,000 years. Yeah. Like, there would be an uncalculable number of yeah. descendants. Yeah. So that's the other thing I don't get. I'm like... I know. Bloodlines are so stupid. Like when you think about them for one second, you're like, it makes no sense. No, absolutely not. (laughs) So, yeah. And there are other things that Dan Brown gets wrong in this book. Like he calls The Last Supper a fresco like 20 times and it's not. It's not painted on plaster. Yeah. Which is what a fresco is. And like (laughs) like kind of some basic information like that, too. Yeah. uh, That kind of discredits. And I mean, like, that's not that shouldn't be the point of the book. I just feel like the book is literally just he's literally like every single thing you've ever heard of in your life (laughs) is the Holy Grail Mary Magdalene. Like he's like astronomy. He's like movies. The shape of stop signs. The shape. Yeah. And then he's like the the divine proportion or whatever. Oh, the golden ratio. The golden ratio. And then like Newton and Da Vinci and the paint like Literally everything. He's like, everything in the world is this. It was a little much. <laughs> it was, especially at this part of the book where they're explaining it, all, explaining it all. This is where he goes into the Walt Disney rant. Yeah. And this is like getting to the end of the chapter. And I'm like, all right. OK, can we just uh, can we just like move Let's it, wrap please? this up. Yeah. <laughs> but that 
is the true history of the Priory of Scion. That is the true history of the fake history. According to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Which I trust a lot more than Dan Brown. Definitely. That's so fascinating. Yeah. That like that popular book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, was based on a fake like (laughs) document. Yeah. And then this document or then this book was based on that book. Yes. Which was based on the fake thing the fake documents yeah which i mean the fake documents only account for the priory of scion in this kind of like blood lineage like all the stuff about uh mary magdalene having a child and and with jesus and like i'm sure other people have theorized that or speculated on that but like this somehow tied it more into conspiracy and i think which is what made it more popular yeah than just being like Hey, maybe Jesus had a kid. I don't know. This yeah. is like, no, he did have a kid. And the, the government church has been, the covering, church it has been up covering it up for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably what like led to its like popularity. And actually that book, Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, is referenced in uh Da Vinci Code yeah. as like one of the books that like made this theory popular. And that is where Lee Teabing's name comes from. Oh. One of the guys' name is Lee, and Teabing is uh, an ambigram of one of the other names. Oh, wow. So that's the reference. And also um, Planter, the guy, Mm -hmm. or Planter, who uh, made that fake document, his name is also referenced. Interesting. As being one of the family, one of the uh, families that's a descendant of the Merovingians. Wow. Yeah. So Dan Brown (laughs) fucking knows. (laughs) He knows this story. Yeah. (laughs) A little too well. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, let's crawl out of this hole we dug ourselves into. Let's, let's go back to the story. Silas attacks. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, got a tip off from the teacher yes. as to where Robert and Sophie and specifically the Keystone, mm-hmm. which is the uh, Cryptex, uh, were at, which is Teabing's house. Mm-hmm. He knocks out Robert and is holding Sophie and Teabing at gunpoint until Teabing just totally owns him with his crutches. I love how in the movie, he kind of like keeps beating him with the crutches over and over after he first gets him down. It's great. It's great, yeah. I was glad they gave Ian McKellen that moment in yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the police show up, and they have a quick decision to make, mm-hmm. which is stay or go. Yeah. So they managed to uh, get to uh, the Land Rover mm-hmm. parked in the barn, Teabing, Robert, Sophie, and now the captured and bound Silas. And Remy, Teabing's oh, manservant. And, and the manservant. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, when they introduced the manservant, yeah. and I, I'm going to keep saying manservant in this book, <laughs> I did not expect him to play as large of a role in this story <laughs> no. as he did. <laughs> I know. You're like, oh, weird. They have the manservant coming along. Yes. <laughs> Um, so they escape through like the backwoods of mm-hmm. the compound in the Land Rover and go to T-Bing's private, or it's not his private airfield, but it's a local airfield that he keeps a plane at. Yeah. Because he's fucking royalty and he's rich as fuck. <laughs> uh, and they take off headed for London because a lot of the Holy Grail mythology points to London. As the location for the Holy Grail. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so they figure that's the next best place to look 
um, for the next clue. Yeah. So this is a very oddball group together. Like we were saying, Silas is tied up. Yes. Remy is just serving T-Bing on this plane. T-Bing <laughs> is going off about the Holy Grail. Sophie and Robert are trying to solve the cryptex. And in the book, they do solve the cryptex. On the plane. On the plane. Open it up only to find a much smaller cryptex. <laughs> The donut hole inside of the donut is actually another donut. Another donut hole. (laughs) For all you Knives Out fans. You know, something I want to say here up top is I really think Dan Brown missed a good chance for interesting dynamics with Silas. Yeah, I agree. They pull Silas around for so much of this story. And he does nothing. And he d- he's just kind of there, like a sack of potatoes. Yeah. But, like, how interesting would it have been if they have to, like, in a moment rely on him, right? If they have yeah. to un- unbind him and, like... Work together Work somehow. together or, you know, their, their goals are aligned briefly. Well, I was going to say, I had already gotten to this part when we watched the movie. And there's a scene in the movie where Sophie confronts Silas. Yeah. And is like, you killed my grandfather. Yeah. And she's upset and she's kind of like, she wants to hurt him, you know, and they have words. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, in the book, they don't even interact and she never no. like even kind of makes the connection that he killed her grandpa and doesn't have a reaction to that. Yeah, I told when I saw that scene in the movie, I'm like, great addition. Yeah. Like good. It like, makes sense that she would. Yeah, for sure. Um I just think it's always like such an interesting point where like he's not the villain, but he's a villain. Yeah. When the hero and the villain have to like work together and especially Silas is a pretty sympathetic character for the most part. I agree. And I think by the end of the movie, you definitely are on his side and see how he's been misguided and misled. Yeah. So you could maybe see him trying to help them in the end. And like maybe realizing that with the characters and kind yeah, of having... That he's made a mistake. Yeah. And making somewhat of a redemption, especially when there are other villains that they could be like facing off against. I just yeah. thought like that was such a great opportunity for interesting dynamics that they didn't really use at all. I agree. Yeah, we get another escape. They're like constantly escaping, like we like yeah. we said, but they have to escape from the plane because the police are waiting for them at the airport in the UK. Yes. Uh I I really like this very simple escape. Yeah. Where you assume that they're hiding on the plane when T-Bing comes out, but really they got out the moment they landed, basically, and got in the limousine before the police showed up. Mm-hmm. And just kind of a very simple misdirect, but like... Effective. Very effective. I think Dan Brown's really good at that. Yeah. Like these very simple building up the suspense of a scene and giving a solution that feels very simple, yeah. but smart and like you should have thought of it. But not being like too action hero-esque Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's not like a, a gunfight, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, they managed to evade the police and they are now going to- The well, Templar Church. Yes, because in, in the, they have another clue in the book. It is- the clue that was in the crypt text yeah. with the other With the text. smaller crypt text. <laughs> and in the film, it's just the little plate that was on the box, right? Yeah. Has the clue on it. Mm-hmm. Can I just say right here, though, like, so, like, the driving force of the story up until this point is Robert is wanted for a murder, right? Yeah. And you have this holy grail thing going on at the same time mm-hmm. that they're kind of, like, 
let's figure this out too as we're going, but yeah. really we're evading the law. Yeah. Then we get to this point. Mm-hmm. They have the cryptex. Uh, they have Silas captured. Yeah. There's no foreseeable threat in the near future. Mm-hmm. And Robert, for the first chance, has the opportunity to go to, to the, embassy. the embassy. Yeah. So the fact that they are just like, well, let's just keep going with this thing. Yeah. Feels a little odd. Well, and I don't really understand why they bring Silas with them. No. Like, couldn't they just be like, this is the guy who, like, couldn't they just have waited for the police after they captured Silas? Yeah. Been like, here, this is the guy that murdered him. Yeah. Um, You can probably trace the gun to the bullet. Yeah. And, like, he's crazy, obviously. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> he's got this thing on his leg. It's it's a very hurtful garter. Yes. Um, And then they could do their own grail research once that was sorted out, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess unless you want to, like, tie it into the twist that happens later and yeah. try to justify it that way. But it does feel very unnecessary and convoluted. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing is, like, you know... And the other aspect, too, is that, like, in the museum, it makes so much sense why uh, Sophie's granddad would have set those clues out the way he did. Yeah. Because in that moment, he's like, I need to pass this key on to Sophie without the police finding it. Yeah. So making clues, directing Robert and Sophie to the key makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then they're on the run. But then when we get to this cryptex part, who is... This four. Yeah, does the grandfather want them to solve the mystery and find the grail? Yeah, Or is he just giving them the shit that they needed? But why is it a mystery to begin with? Why is this, like, he's already gone to such lengths to keep this hidden, right? It was in, like, a secure-ass Swiss bank vault, right? Yeah. So then why is it, again, a cryptex with, like, codes and, like, hints to other things? (laughs) And why is it a treasure hunt? Yeah. I don't think it is ever justified at all. There's vague allusions to like, only the worthy can find the grail. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, reasonably, why is it set up this way? I mean, why is it ever, right? Like the treasure hunts, you know, national treasure. You've got like <laughs> True. Indiana Jones. Why Why is it a treasure hunt? Yeah. Why just be like, it's here. I hid it here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, wrote, I only told two people. I wrote it on one slip of paper <laughs> that I've had in my wallet for 20 years. Yeah. Or it's locked in my safe, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I think you just kind of like. You're so used to that trope yeah. that you're just kind of like, yeah, all right, you're along for the ride. And like, mm-hmm. I don't think it like slows up the story that much. Yeah. But whereas the beginning made so much sense. Yeah. Even though it was kind of absurd, like it, it really justified itself. At this point, when you think about it, you're like. Wait, why is this happening? Yeah. Why are we, why are any of these like obstacles necessary from her granddad's point of view? Yeah. Like for this secret that. They just were supposed to pass down. I don't know. I don't quite get it. Yeah, I agree with you. And like, did would he have told Sophie everything if she had met him that e- that afternoon? Yeah. Like, would he have just told her what she needed to do? Yeah. Instead of giving her, like, sending her on this treasure hunt? Yeah. It's like, hey, you know, the Holy Grail. Well, it's actually Mary Magdalene. Just go right here. Uh, yeah, she's buried here. <laughs> yeah. Give me your uh, Google Maps. I'll, I'll enter. <laughs> I'll drop a pin. I'll, put the, I'll drop a pin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, the intent of the grandfather with all these, like, clues and hidden meanings and stuff is just, like, totally never explained. Yeah. As far as I can tell. Let's go to the Templar Church. Because speaking of convoluted, because they're they're there for some reason, Ian, the clue leads them there. 
And they're like, okay, it's got to be in this church. It is not in this church. No. They are mistaken. And this is when Silas is freed from his bonds. Remy frees him. Yes. And we're like, oh, shit, Remy is the teacher. Mm-hmm. At least the movie tells us that. Yeah. The book, he's like, I'm not the teacher. I just work for the teacher. Yeah. Uh, Silas fucks up immediately. <laughs> Because <laughs> Robert threatens to break the cryptex. Yeah. And Silas doesn't know what to do. So then Remy is like, ba ba da ba. Here I'm, I am. I'm also a bad I'm guy. I'm evil. I'm also evil. And everyone's like, Remy? The manservant? <laughs> <laughs> and then he threatens to shoot Teabing, gets the cryptex from them. To, and then he and Silas leave and take Teabing as a hostage. And so Robert and Sophie are left alone they have to find Teabing and they have to get the cryptex back. Which once again, like in the book, they're like, okay, we have to go where the next clue was leading. I guess to like cut them off at the next clue, but like yeah. who says they have to go to that clue now? Yeah. They could they could wait like a year to go there. Yeah. I I don't know. But at this point, they get a call from the teacher. Silas is told to go to a hideout. And stay there mm-hmm. where, while Remy will handle the rest of everything that's going on. Yeah. We get a scene in the book and movie where Remy is talking to the faceless teacher. Mm-hmm. He is poisoned. With peanuts. With peanuts. <laughs> in the movie, I think we're just meant to assume that he's poisoned with peanuts. It's never confirmed. Because there's like a throwaway line that the... Um, one police chief is like, oh, he's allergic to peanuts. Yeah. And then we just see him drink from a flask and start choking. Yeah. But it just could be regular poison also. <laughs> I, I joked with Adina that like he drops the flask and just like whole peanuts just like <laughs> fall out of it. <laughs> he was drinking peanuts. He drank peanuts. He should have known. <laughs> and this in the movie is where it's revealed that the teacher is teabing himself. So before we before we move on, though, I just want to say, I don't know if it's possible to die immediately from a peanut allergy. Yeah. And if it is, he would definitely he would have an, have EpiPen. an EpiPen on him at yes. all times. Yeah. Because you could mistakenly eat a peanut at so many moments. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> you would have an EpiPen. He would have an EpiPen. Yeah. Sorry, I just needed to mention that. No, that's very, very (laughs) true. Like that, if you're that allergic, you would. You would have 15 EpiPens. Like you would have so many. I would just be shooting them in my leg like Like on the hour. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, So Teabing is the teacher. Yeah. Now, I think in as a whole, this twist is great. It makes sense. Yeah. We knew he was a grail aficionado, right? And his dream was to find the grail Mm -hmm. and that he is a man of immense wealth and resources. Yeah. So he seems like an obvious fit for the teacher. And really, it was just his charming demeanor that kind of made you not really suspect him. Yeah. So I think that all makes sense. Mm -hmm. However, Dan Brown just threw the world's largest wrench into the gears right before this reveal with like Remy yeah. revealing to be working for the teacher and then getting betrayed by him. And like, why did he kidnap him in the movie? We don't get a good reason why he kidnapped him. Yeah. In the book, it's a very convoluted series of events that led to this. So basically, so Teabing has both Remy and Silas working for him, right? Yeah. Because he's the teacher. So, I just, it makes no sense. Both scenes that involve Silas 
like the scene at the house. Yeah. When Silas breaks in and tries to steal a crypt text. And then the scene in the Templar church when Silas tries to take the cryptex and then Remy joins him and they kidnap Teabing. Both of those scenes don't make sense if you think about Teabing's goals, right? Because as the teacher, he's trying to find the grail. And honestly, as soon as Robert and Sophie come to him with the cryptex, he should have aborted his previous plan yeah. with Silas and just been like, okay, now we're just going to like work together to find the grail. What he could have done is he could have, they could have tied Silas up, mm-hmm. given him to the police. Yeah. And then his role in it would be totally hidden. Because he always had Remy with him too. Yeah. And so Silas would be the scapegoat. Silas yeah. would go to prison. And then Remy with Sophie and Robert could look for the grail at their at their leisure. Yeah, exactly. And the only possible issue is if, Sophie and Robert didn't want to reveal yeah. the truth about the Holy Grail because that is Teabing's mission. But like, then fucking kill them. Yeah, then do that. Yeah. Like, deal with that later. And then same thing in the in the Templar Church. Like, he could have just had Silas not kidnap him and they could have just continued looking for the grail together because they all wanted to look for the grail because then immediately after this fake kidnapping betrayal of silas and yeah. remy uh teabing is like oh fuck you know what i actually still need robert's help with oh this. i don't know how to solve it on my own maybe i should have just stayed with them and we could have <laughs> solved it together i didn't need to double cross them and be crazy yeah it makes no sense, Ian. I know. Like, <laughs> like the teabing twist as a whole makes sense, but his decisions right here, none are of them- shit. Yeah, are batshit, and like none of them make any sense at all. Yeah. So it's very frustrating. It is. Because I feel like there could have been a hundred different ways with these elements at play, with Remy, with Silas, with teabing mm-hmm. and revealing this twist. Like, there's so many different ways I think they could have done it yeah. more effectively- more interestingly yeah. than what ended up happening. He needed more of a reason to continually involve Silas and have this double crossing happen. Yeah. You know, because like his reasoning is, well, you might not reveal the truth and the truth had to be revealed. And he in the book later on, he's like, the priory had decided not to reveal the truth. And like, I knew I had to kill, had to kill them to find out the information. Like, I, I can accept that part, but like he had no reason to believe that Robert and Sophie would still continue to hide the secret. Yeah, not really. No. And like, like you were saying, then he could have killed them later if they were like, well, we'll never reveal it. Yeah, they still don't know who he is at that point. And the fact that he needs their help immediately after double crossing them, it just feels so stupid. Also, when he shows up again, he probably could have made up a lie. Yeah. About like, oh, I they got away. Yeah, they, I, they, <laughs> they let me go because they didn't want a hostage. Yeah. And I thought of this church and I came here like you still didn't have to reveal yourself I know it's just it's for for drama unnecessarily I think yeah extra twists and yeah yeah um they both converge teabing after doing a a murder and Robert and Sophie converge at this church because they realize the night whose tomb they're looking for is Isaac Newton Mm -hmm. and that the poem is asking for an orb uh, of 
Rosie, the orbs. The orbs of rosy flesh and seeded womb. Yeah. That it should be on the tomb that isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a question, Adina. Did you know what the answer was? No. Okay, because recently, and this is so ironic, John Oliver posted a YouTube video from his show <laughs> where he went on a whole rant about how he hates Da Vinci Code <laughs> and how obvious this clue was oh, and this answer. I didn't think it was obvious. I I couldn't say because like I read this when I was in sixth grade True. and I still remembered the answer, but I was like, I don't think it seems like that obvious. Well, I also, when I was reading it, was never trying to solve the clues. No. I don't know. When, I, when I'm reading... Books, I don't usually try to guess. No. Because I'm like, I'm probably not going to guess. This is a, a thriller. So there's going to be twists that I usually don't see coming. Well, and yeah, and usually so much else is going on besides the quiz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that like you're not really actively trying to figure it out. Yeah, there's there was a lot happening. Yeah, I didn't think that this was an obvious. Okay. Obvious we'll, we'll have thing. to watch that John Oliver <laughs> oh, clip. Oh yeah, like. I know. It, it is very funny. <laughs> uh, he just for some reason hates the Da Vinci Code so much. And... Probably because it's poorly researched. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'll post that video on our Patreon for uh, anyone or you could just look it up on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, so it's this whole scene Robert figures out that it's Apple, um, but doesn't want Teabing to get the crypt text. So he secretly solves it, pulls the paper out, and then pretends to, or actually throws it. And Teabing kind of goes for it, thus not having the gun on Sophie anymore. And then he is arrested because at this point, Fash has realized that he's being played. Yeah. Uh, the bishop realizes that he's being played. Uh, but Silas accidentally shoots him because Silas gets into a gunfight with the police and then Silas is shot and then Silas dies dramatically. That was a quick wrap up of all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting, but at the same time, it's just like a lot happening. It is. And like the Silas bishop relationship which we've never we've hardly seen anything of they're not together at all. no it really didn't have the emotional payoff that it could have had yeah uh once again i'm like what is the bishop's purpose in this story uh i do want to say just going back to the uh solving the crypt text scene yeah i do love that scene a lot it's very dramatic and good it's done very well with throwing the crypt text Mm -hmm. and getting uh uh, teabing to dive for it to and, try to protect and it. abandon his gun and i genuinely like ian mckellen is such a good actor i know that when he's on the floor like screaming about it <laughs> i'm like i feel so bad for him i know like this was everything to him i know he killed so many people but like for a cause but like he really wanted it you know <laughs> Same with Silas. He killed so many people, but like, I feel bad for him. I think that says a lot about this story that we felt more emotion and sympathy towards <laughs> for the villains, the murderers <laughs> than we did for Robert or Sophie. Yeah, we were like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Robert did get the clue out of the crypt text before smashing it. Mm-hmm. He knew it was Apple. He knew it was Apple. He fucking knew it was Apple. <laughs> uh, and he is able to figure out the following clue almost immediately, which sends them to... Roslyn Chapel? Yes. I forget. It's it's in Scotland, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roslyn Chapel. So in the book, they get there, and Sophie immediately recognizes the church yeah. and remembers being there with her granddad once mm-hmm. and this house behind it. And she is reunited with her grandmother, 
that she thought was dead. Yeah. The curator's wife and her brother, yeah. who she thought died in the same car crash that her parents were killed in. Yeah. And you find out that Sophie and her brother and her whole family, so including her grandfather and, and grandmother, are descended from Jesus and Mary Magdalene. They've been protected by the Priory of the Scion. Her grandfather was the grandmaster in this society. And that when her parents were killed in a car crash, um, the whole family was supposed to be in that car, I guess, that day. Yeah. And by coincidence, they weren't. So the grandparents kind of realized that it could have been people trying to kill the bloodline. Yeah. And so they decide for the children's safety to separate. So the grandfather takes Sophie and the grandmother takes her brother. And they never really see each other that often after that. The two of them, the grandpa and grandma, have to live apart in order to protect their grandchildren. And then the grandma, like, finds out that her husband is dead. Yeah. It's really sad. It's very depressing. I mean, it's, it's nice that Sophie is reunited with her you know, grandma and brother. Yeah. After all these years, we never did mention that Sophie was kind of estranged from her granddad. Oh, yeah. Before he died. <laughs> and it's kind of this like hinted at thing where she like caught him in some kind of ritual. Yeah. And of course, we're like, oh, well, it's a sex ritual. right? It's either a, a killing ritual or a sex ritual. <laughs> and it ended up being a sex ritual. She saw her granddad boning. Yeah. And when we heard that. Or when I heard that, I was like, is that really a reason to, like, cut him off out of your life? Yeah. Like, okay, he's into some freaky sex shit. Like, yeah. He's your only family. Yeah. Like, come on. And then we find out later that he's doing it for the secret society, right? And then we find out later <laughs> that he's actually boning his own wife. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> it's his own wife for a sex ritual. While the Priory of the Scion members watch in masks, chanting, but he's doing it with his own wife, Ian. Yeah. Do you think <laughs> they wanted to do the ritual, or do you think that was, like, the only way that they could bone? I think both. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were, like, they saw their chance and they took it. <laughs> no, uh, he wasn't like, listen, baby, we can meet each other and we can we can bang, but... Yeah. All of our friends have to be there. <laughs> They'll all be wearing masks, so you won't know who's who or, like, who actually showed up, but there will be a ring of masked people around us. Chanting. Chanting. That does it for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, like, when this reveal that what Sophie saw was this sex ritual and that made her, like, never talk to her granddad again. Yeah. I was kind of like, that doesn't feel like a total justification. Yeah. I would at least let him explain to me well, i'd be yeah. like well this better be good i think uh, yeah <laughs> please i think it just came down to like plot convenience because yeah. like sophie's granddad wanted to warn her about things and wanted to tell her about things otherwise he would have been a total dick yeah to keep all that from her but she had to like willfully ignore him mm -hmm. for a reason um so that's i think what dan brown thought made the most sense yeah and in this scene, when she's reunited with her grandma and mm -hmm. brother, that's kind of it for this book part. Like, they don't really find anything else at the chapel. No. But the movie <laughs> is like, oh, there's many secret rooms. This movie scene is really <laughs> dumb. Yeah, they're like, let's just go in this secret corner yeah. of the church. They go down to this basement, which is un 
barricaded. So, yeah. like, you're allowed to go down they there. They go under, like, a rope. That's yeah. it. Then there is a single rope that <laughs> says, like, don't come in here. <laughs> and they're like, okay, okay, so they go under it. And then they're in a room full of Da Vinci paintings. Yeah. And I'm like... The only thing keeping your Da Vinci paintings, <laughs> which, by the way, you're storing in a dank cellar. Yeah, no. The only thing keeping your people from who are just in this church from seeing the Da Vinci paintings was just a chain. <laughs> uh, and then they're like, oh, but wait, there is a trap door under this rug. Yeah. Once again, not that well hidden. <laughs> they go down this trap door. And then they discover documents, documents, which again, where are the um, archival preservation? <laughs> I know. Like these are ancient documents, right? Yeah. They need to be in controlled temperature yeah. and atmospheric settings like humidity. Yeah. People cannot be just like breathing on these in a documents. cubby yeah. in, a, in like a the second level of a basement yeah. of a church. No. Yeah, no. This is... <laughs> I get the atmosphere, like, wanting that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the documents and everything, it was like... Yeah. This doesn't... And I, I can totally believe or I understand how this scene was added for the film. Yeah. Because it didn't feel that well thought out. Yeah, and this is where Sophie finds out that she is descended from Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Uh, the the movie makes her grandfather not her grandfather. Yeah. And just uh, the grandmaster of the Priory of the Scion taking her in to care for her herself after the rest of her family was killed. She does meet her grandmother because all the Priory of the Scion <laughs> members just show up. In very horror movie fashion. Yeah. They're just waiting They're for like, them. They're like, hello. <laughs> I almost expected them to start like worshiping her or something. Yeah. That doesn't happen. But it does kind of feel like a similar homecoming for her. She meets her grandma and that kind of wraps up that part of the story. There's there's an interesting scene though where Robert and her have a discussion about like are you going to reveal your origins or what's going on or yeah. and they kind of have this whole theological discussion where Robert is not defending faith. Yeah. But it was a scene I couldn't help but wonder if it was included to kind of like push back against like the backlash of the film. Yeah. To have someone very vocally be like, and he, he defends the church a lot more throughout the movie. I think like when he's talking to Lee yeah, about, uh, you know, Oh, well we don't know if the pagans or the church began the war, like after Jesus' death, like yeah. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It just felt like this feels like they're trying to get appease at. the church a bit. Yeah. They did not succeed. <laughs> no, no. Because <laughs> people who were pissed at it did not see the movie. Yeah, so. they were like, I'm not watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> then we get the epilogue. Yes. Where Robert is still wanting to find the tomb of Mary Magdalene. He's like, we didn't find it. We found all those documents in the movie, but not the tomb. And in the book, they don't find anything except Sophie's family. Uh, boring. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, wait, the clue that we found that I thought led us to the Roslyn Chapel might actually be a clue for Paris instead. He... Follows the Rose Line, mm -hmm. which was the original north-south line of the world. Um, he follows that all the way to the Louvre, mm -hmm. where he figures out that uh, the tomb of Mary Magdalene has been 
put beneath the glass pyramids of the Louvre. Yeah. In a hidden vault or tomb. There's like an inverted pyramid and then there's like a tiny little baby pyramid. Little baby pyramid. Beneath it. And he knows that Mary Magdalene is there and he he sits there and he prays to the divine feminine. (laughs) I really do love this reveal. Yeah. Bringing it all the way back to the Louvre. (laughs) Yeah. With the pyramids and like it does fit like the prompt of the clue perfectly Mm -hmm. and also just makes sense that like that's where uh, Sophie's granddad worked. Yeah, he could keep an eye on it. Yeah, and that the pyramids were built like recently. At, yeah, and that like they could have like, and that that would be a place that's probably controlled for humidity and heat yes. and other <laughs> factors. <laughs> uh, I just like it was one of those moments where I'm like, this feels like a very good payoff. Yeah, I liked that too, and it just kind of being like. They didn't really ever discover it. It's just that Robert knew and kind of solved it in the end. It was more the satisfaction of solving it than anything being revealed. And of course, in the end of the story, the truth about Jesus and his lineage and Mary Magdalene are are not yet revealed to the world. Yeah, still still hush hush. (laughs) Still a secret. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We didn't really talk too much comparatively between book and movie uh, for quite a bit of this, but that's because... They're the same. Incredibly similar, (laughs) yet the quality between them is drastically different. Yeah. I will ask you which was better, book versus movie. The book. Book by a mile. Yeah, I mean, I have problems with the book, you know, like I talked about. Some of the, like the twist with Teabing doesn't really make sense to me. The info dumping, the fact that this was very poorly researched, like, but I would probably give this book three stars. Yeah. You know, it's like, thrilling it's exciting it is a like historical thriller you know and i love the excitement of it i love the mystery of it i think it does a good job with that yeah and you know as far as the research goes i kind of don't even have a problem with what dan brown did in terms of like i mean you know movies have been like hey what if this conspiracy were true oh yeah like that is very common Mm -hmm. but i think a book sell he he has more room to sell it like he can just devote like pages of like explaining it and like yeah i think it connects with people more and the fact that he's just like yeah no this is true yeah even though he very well should know better if he doesn't if he was like no i mean like i made this up you know yeah some of it's based in historical fact but a lot of it's like i just put it all together yeah like who i cares? would be like great awesome cool. i love that yeah, yeah no like it's still a <laughs> thrilling fun book to read yeah and it know? gets people interested in history oh yeah like for us i think it was like you know what's true and what isn't true like it made me want to research a lot more yeah and, like the mary magdalene thing they were like she wasn't a prostitute there's no historical validation for that and i looked it up and it's it seems to be true yeah like that's kind of just something that people made up yeah because <laughs> she was sinful mm-hmm. basically they're actually like, probably a prostitute <laughs> uh and that's something i didn't know so yeah you know this can lead to like cool things like that oh definitely yeah like the movie does everything basically the same but it's just so boring and it's so long and yes we watched the extended cut but it was only 10 minutes longer and it was still too long (laughs) so yeah um i just uh i think ron howard was a bad choice to direct this movie yeah unfortunately like he is a good director sometimes when he like i think is working with the right material but like i don't know there was just a lack of energy and enthusiasm both from Tom Hanks and the directing and mm-hmm. 
the style of the film. And it, it it's really unfortunate because the foundation of the book that's there is really good for a thriller. Yeah, I mean, it's a page turner for sure. Yeah. And I just kind of... Uh, Where does that tension go? It's nowhere in the movie. Yeah, I'm just like a little baffled at how off the mark they were. Yeah, I was surprised to see that this movie has a 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if it quite deserves that. It felt a little harsh. It just seems like kind of a middle-of-the-road movie. But it is really long and really boring, so... Yeah, like, it doesn't have any humor in it. It tries to do only one thing, which is to kind of be exciting. Yeah. And it fails at that one thing. Yeah. Uh, with a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 25%, I agree it is. it seems harsh, but then again, I can kind of understand that. Yeah. So it's a book for both of us. An exciting page-turning thriller. Full of lies. Full of lies. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't uh, base your whole identity off of it. So yes. You should be safe if you uh, don't do that. Although, assu- unless you're reading this in 2003, I highly doubt that <laughs> yeah. you are doing that in 2022. <laughs> All right, let's do lightning round. Yeah, let's do lightning. So first up for lightning round, I want to mention there is a scene in the book where they consult the help of a library and a librarian. And it really doesn't factor into the plot, and they could have cut it, probably. Yeah. I think it's fun, though. They have this very cheerful British librarian (laughs) who makes them some tea and some shitty coffee because it's England, and they're like, we want coffee. And she's like, I uh, I don't really have any coffee. instant. (laughs) But she is helping them find Newton's tomb, which they don't realize is Newton's tomb at the time. And she plugs in the results to the computer and they find they find the answers that they need. So find your local librarian or seek out your library for any answers you may need as well. Yes. Of all the things they kept in this movie, I'm very disappointed they left out the helpful librarian. Yeah. And said they have like a crappy flip phone on the bus with a boy and that's how they research it. <laughs> I know. I heard they did want to film in the library, yeah. um, but they didn't want them to film there. <laughs> So <laughs> was, like get the fuck out just get a kid with a phone <laughs> um so uh tying back into the holy blood and the holy grail yeah the, uh you know the book that was written on all this conspiracy that dan brown pulled from heavily for the da vinci code two of those three authors were pissed off oh and sued dan brown mm. over this and the judge rightfully was like well your book is nonfiction, supposedly, right? Yeah. So, yeah, he's not stealing your idea if it is, in fact, true. Oh, my gosh. So, they had to be like... If it was, uh, yeah, if it was fiction, that would be the plot of their story yeah. stolen. But their whole thing was like, no, this is real. And then the judge is like, okay, then. Well, he you wrote fiction about it. Yeah. So oh, my God. That's so funny. You don't money. own history. Yeah. <laughs> That is hilarious. Isn't that amazing? I love that. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Next up for lightning round, I just want to mention a couple lines in the movie that were added and that were not in the book, and they kind of stand out to me. One of them, because it's so stupid, which is when they are in the bank together and they find the box, and Robert says, my God, I don't believe this. A rose. (laughs) Because there's a rose on the box. (laughs) And I'm like, 
what? <laughs> he just sounds like so surprised. And he's like, it's a rose. It means everything. Yeah. It's just so dramatic for no reason. It's also one of those lines that Tom Hanks sells with as much enthusiasm as if he were like selling car insurance on a commercial. Yeah. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe this. A rose. A rose. There's another line that I think was better where uh, T-Bing is coming down from the plane and trying to like throw off the authorities. And he's like, oh, did that cannabis charge like finally come back around? <laughs> yeah. Kind of hinting at like, oh, he had like a weed charge in the past yes. in his youth. I, I liked that line better. I That line was actually really funny. <laughs> and also when the police threaten to shoot him, he's like, well, go ahead. You can start with him. And he like points to his <laughs> to manservant. <Remy>. Yeah. <laughs> um, finally, this is just a very small but interesting factoid. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci is not his actual name. It just refers to where he's from. Oh, like, really? Da Vinci basically means like Vinci is uh, like a province or area that he his father or his family's from oh i never knew that yeah so the da vinci code is like a town code the man from this general region code (laughs) if (laughs) you want to translate it yeah i had no idea about that that's cool yeah that wraps up our lightning round and our episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support us, you can become a patron of ours on our Patreon account. Uh, We have a bonus episode coming out this month on the woman across the street from From the girl in the window. (laughs) Yes. Um, We're just going to talk about women and girl thriller genres in general um, and about this really funny parody show. So if you want to check out that episode and tons and tons of other bonus episodes you can become a patron at any level and have access to that yes uh you can also leave us a positive star rating or review on apple podcasts which is very helpful to us if you go to cover credits.com uh you can uh listen to episodes there and mm-hmm. also find links to our facebook our instagram email uh patreon. twitter patreon you can find all those links just at cover credits.com and, uh, you know, find us and follow us there for even more content. Yes. Follow our Instagram for secret messages that we will be encoding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that will lead you on a treasure hunt to uh, something decipher, interesting. Decipher the clues. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.